this week on the Backtable Podcast. This is just another tool in a thyroid practice. So every patient who comes in to me with a benign thyroid nodule is offered the options of observation with no intervention, radiofrequency ablation if appropriate, or surgery if appropriate. We don't force people into anything. We just make them aware of the options. And patients tend to come to places that they get good clinical care and that they have an array of options and someone's willing to discuss it with them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shah, and I'm a pediatric ENT. I have a very special guest, a returning guest on our show today for a really, really awesome episode. I have Dr. David Goldenberg. He's professor and chair of the Department of Otolaryngology at Pennsylvania State University in Hershey, Pennsylvania. He's a head and neck surgical oncologist. You may have heard him on Backtable ENT episode 35, thyroid nodules, and episode 85, surgical management of parathyroid disease. Dr. Goldenberg is here today to talk to us about radiofrequency ablation of thyroid nodules. Welcome to the show, David. How are you? I'm fine, Gopi. Thank you very much for having me back again. Thanks for coming on. For our listeners who may not know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Sure. I'm a uh, head and neck surgeon at Penn State Health and Penn State College of Medicine in Hershey, Pennsylvania. A lot of my practice and research and education efforts center around thyroid and parathyroid disease and thought it natural that we talk about the uh, newest intervention kit on the block, which is radiofrequency ablation of thyroid nodules. That's great. So before we get into the newest intervention, can we set the stage, just a brief you know, overview for evaluation and management of thyroid nodules, just setting the stage? Well, before performing any intervention on thyroid nodule, there needs to be some comprehensive workup to ensure that patients are safe and appropriate for whatever procedure we are doing. And typically, we talk about medical history and physical exam just like any other illness or any other syndrome or any other issue. We want to make sure pre-existing medical conditions, medications, allergies, etc. Oftentimes, we get imaging studies. When it comes to thyroid, typically that is an ultrasound, which is the imaging modality of choice. Oftentimes, we'll get thyroid function tests, at the very least a TSH level. Many times, patients are sent to us uh, with these values already in their chart. Patients may have had a fine needle aspiration biopsy or a core biopsy. Sometimes we need to send them for that. Other laboratory tests, in some cases, autoantibody testing for inflammatory conditions, patients' evaluation perhaps for anesthesia, and obviously the discussion of the risks and benefits. And so when we think of um, a patient that presents to you with thyroid nodules, we, you know, you have the ultrasound and depending on how big it is, symptoms, you decide to get an FNA that's still part of your management? Yes. You know, FNA is paramount for evaluating whether the patient has benign or malignant disease. And that's typically why we get it. It's both highly specific and sensitive. And it's the cornerstone of interventional treatment of thyroid nodules, whether it be surgery or radiofrequency ablation. 
So when I think of uh, before radiofrequency ablation, I think of, you know, we get the FNA. If it's benign and the patient's asymptomatic, then we may watch them and kind of that pathway. If we're not sure or if they're symptomatic or if there's a concern for malignancy, we think of a surgical pathway. How does radiofrequency ablation work for a thyroid nodule and where does it fit into the algorithm now? Well, you put it exactly the way it was up until now. If it was benign, it was either watched or removed, depending on whether it was a bothersome or worrisome. And if it was malignant, it was part of a surgical algorithm that the very least would be removal of a lobe and at the very most total thyroidectomy and a variety of lymph node dissections. So RFA is typically used for benign thyroid nodules. That's first of all either cystic or non-cystic, sometimes for uh, goitrous lesions, for autonomously functioning thyroid lesions, and uh, nodules that are growing and symptomatic. And symptomatic means they're causing compressive symptoms to swallowing, to comfort, to breathing, or they are a cosmetic concern for the patient. There is a potential application for micropapillary thyroid cancers, which is being evaluated as we speak and is used in other parts of the world. So that's where RFA fits in. Uh, oftentimes patients will come specifically asking because they do not want to have surgical intervention, but the nodule is bothering them in some way. And so when this is sort of on the table as an option, is there a certain size that's too small for this? Or how do you decide who's going to be a good candidate? We typically say larger than two centimeters, and if they exhibit increase in size, I have to be convinced that their compressive symptoms are being caused by this. As you well know, patients sometimes will have compressive or what they call compressive symptoms or cough or issues that may be attributable to other things, including something as benign as uh, laryngeal reflux, but in their mind, their thyroid nodule is causing it. And when you look at the nodule, it's you know half a centimeter. It's obviously not causing it. And in those cases, it's very important to have a discussion with the patient and, and explain to them what other issues can be causing their symptoms. And obviously, for them, radiofrequency ablation would not be appropriate. Who's doing the radiofrequency ablation? Is this something uh, otolaryngologists are doing? Is this the interventional radiologist? Who's actually performing the procedure? So yes, to all of those. Endocrinologists are doing it, otolaryngologists, head and neck surgeons are doing it, endocrine surgeons are doing it, endocrinologists are doing it. It doesn't really matter as long as the doctor who's doing this is trained. And the most important thing is they have to be facile with interventional ultrasound. They have to be very comfortable with ultrasound, ultrasound anatomy. And because this is done under continuous ultrasonic guidance, with the tip of the needle being visualized the entire time to keep it safe. Are patients able to have radiofrequency ablation for more than one nodule at the same time? Or they, they can. You know, usually if a person has more than one nodule, we'll see which one is the one that is causing an issue and target that first and foremost. The idea, I think, would not be, you know, each one of these takes about 40, 45 minutes. Most patients tolerate it really well. I typically, I guess most of my patients have had one ablated at a time. Yeah, that's typically the way it's done. And are the patients under general anesthesia, sedation? Is this in the OR, the clinic? 
So we do this in the clinic. The patient receives local anesthesia, regional anesthesia, cervical block, and some sedation. But it's done completely awake in clinic. I ask that they have a driver and they go home right afterwards. Yeah, it's very convenient for the patients. David, can you go into you know what you're using for your local, regional cervical blocks and then the steps to perform those blocks? First and foremost, the patient is given 0.5 or 1 milligram of Ativan prior to the procedure. The procedure itself is not painful, but I do say that it is intense because I am leaning right over their face and their neck while they're awake for, you know, with a big needle in their neck and an ultrasound probe in the other hand. What we do is we give a local anesthetic in the midline over the isthmus of the thyroid with lidocaine. And then we make a small stab incision with an 11 blade. Then under ultrasonic guidance, using a spinal needle, we insert the needle in between the strap muscles above and the capsule of the thyroid gland below. And then we use the lidocaine to hydrodissect and basically anesthetize the capsule of the thyroid gland. Once that's done, the radio frequency ablation probe is inserted through the stab incision, through the isthmus of the thyroid. And from there, it goes into, it's placed inside the nodule that we're going to ablate. The heat that's produced by the electric tip causes tissue necrosis and fibrosis, introducing a high frequency alternating current, raises the temperature to 60 to 100 degrees Celsius. And we use something called the moving shot technique, we work from medial and deep to lateral and superficial, and we constantly move the radiofrequency ablation probe. I say that because radiofrequency ablation is not a new technology. And uh, for the decades, it's been used for liver tumors and for pain management. And originally, when it was first used, they would place the radiofrequency probe in the middle of whatever lesion they were going to ablate and turn on the heat and just leave it there and let it kind of heat from the inside out. And that's not what we do with thyroid here. What we do is we keep on moving the needle to make sure that we get all of as or as much of the nodule ablated as possible, but also so that we are able to continue to see what it looks like and the ablation does not obscure the rest of the nodule. This way we get a, a really good ablation and you know, then it will scar down and the body will remove a, a lot of this necrotic tissue. So going back a step, when you do the local and hydrodissect with the local, you're, you're doing that under visualization? So the local anesthetic, where we put it just under the skin, we don't need that. But once I've made the stab incision where the local is placed, which is usually in the middle of the neck over the isthmus of the thyroid, right? Tiny little incision. Then the a spinal needle, is used under ultrasound visualization in between the strap muscles above and the thyroid capsule below it. And then the lidocaine is injected in between those two layers. And this is how we anesthetize the capsule of the thyroid gland. And then you said when you put the RFA needle in, your ultrasound probe is visualizing the nodule the whole time so that you can see the needle. At all times. At all times. And you're going and moving the needle as you ablate from medial and deep to lateral and superficial. 
as you do that, are you holding it for like one or two seconds yes, and then taking yes. sort of incremental, do you have to hold it? Are you hold, is there like a pedal and then you're like holding it down it, the whole time or do you have to start, stop, start, stop? Uh, you have to uh, start, stop. It's under direct visualization. You can actually see as the changes in the thyroid at the tip of the needle, sometimes it bubbles and pops and, and you'll see this white frail. In addition, you're able to look at the impedance on the machine. If the baseline impedance for where you are in the nodule suddenly jumps, what that means is that area has already been ablated and we move on. I see. And so do you have to adjust your ultrasound hand at the same time a little bit? Because the nodules... At all times. It's dynamic. So you have to kind of... It is very dynamic. And so how do you know when you've ablated enough? Are you going to see, okay, 50% of it looks like it's shrunk now and we're good? Or how do you make that call? Well, you know, there's obvious sonographic uh, features that guide the operator in real time micro bubbling, as I explained, and the increase in the general impedance as the tissue kind of uh, stiffens, which is an indication of coagulative necrosis. What we're trying to do is approach the tissue in subunits from the deepest to the most superficial so that we don't obscure ourselves. What you see is these white tracks where you have ablated. It's very, very obvious. And once you've finished ablating, then I will go from a transverse view to a lateral view to make sure that I have hit all the levels. Now, there are important areas that you want to avoid. So for instance, at all times you'll see the carotid artery, and at all times you'll see the danger triangle, which is the area where the recurrent laryngeal nerve is tethered to the trachea close to the posterior medial aspect of the thyroid gland. So in those areas, I typically do not ablate because of the risk to the patient. I'm glad you talked about risk and I kind of wanted to next talk about patient selection. Are there certain nodule characteristics where you're like, mm, this may not be a good candidate because the nodules in the danger triangle or I have to worry about the recurrent lingual nerve or, you know, tell me some of, some of that when you uh, have to kind of think about the nodule and if this is a good candidate for radiofrequency ablation. Well, um, I mean, that's... Or do you just not put your needle in <laughs> so deep for that one? No, no, no. There, there is something to be said about, you know, it's really important patient selection, just like any other procedure. So it, it's really important that first and foremost, that the patient wants to have this done. Usually they seek me out to have this done. I have to evaluate them first to make sure that they're appropriate candidates from what they have and what their expectations are. I explained to them, for instance, that this does not shrink overnight. As a matter of fact, it may swell up a little bit the next day from, you know, the work that I've done and that, you know, the body has to evacuate the necrotic tissue for this to shrink. So patient expectations, uh, I guess there are certain ultrasonic characteristics which may make this more difficult. And that would be patients who have large coarse calcifications, patients who I suspect that the, that, the, that the lesion is malignant. And, you know, sometimes you'll have patients who they're looking for an answer and sometimes it's not really the answer they want to hear. Uncooperative patients, for instance, it's very important to make sure that you have a patient who is not cognitively impaired, someone who will cooperate. Cooperation means lying still 
and notifying me if they need to swallow because there's, you know, a large needle in their neck. Actually, we give them a little squeaky ball if they need to swallow. And, and sometimes you'll have patients who just, it's very, very difficult for them to comply. Obviously, patients who have allergies or reactions to anesthesia or, um, you know, those would not be favorable uh, patients. What about patients with high BMI or uh, a bigger neck? Any concerns with like, do you need the neck extended or, you know, if they have like C-spine issues, anything like that, that may make you say, you know, I don't know if we're going to, this is going to be a good procedure for you. Absolutely. And that's a great point. So I have done patients with issues with their C-spine and I've done morbidly obese patients as well. And the discussion is had up front, just like before I do thyroid surgery, I always check a patient's ability to hyperextend and also to tilt their neck. Because sometimes when a, a nodule is close to the clavicle, all you need them to do is turn their head in the opposite direction to kind of bring it out. I do have patients hyperextended like thyroid surgery. And when they're awake, it's a lot less tolerable than when we have them doing so for a thyroidectomy when they're asleep. Morbid obesity, I've not found these to be issues with patients. Uh, typically, I can always use a probe that has a greater depth. It has not been an issue. In terms of the nodules that are by the clavicle or near the sternum, is there any contraindication or does it just make it more difficult? Are you still able to get those that are, you know, right at the sternal notch? What do you need to make that nodule work with RFA? Well, they're evaluated. Remember, all these patients have, before they are found to be appropriate for RFA, they all have ultrasounds, right? Which I view personally, and they all have at least one benign biopsy. That's really important. If I'm comfortable that we could do this, then it's fine. If it's something that, you know, I've had patients who came to me who have a retrosternal goiter, you know, most of it in the mediastinum, and I tell them this is not appropriate for you. And sometimes people understand and, and they just undergo a, uh, a surgical procedure with me and, and they get the result that they need. There are sometimes patients who they'll go find someone else because they don't like the answer they hear. Yeah. You'd mentioned large calcifications. You mentioned malignancy. Is there ever a role for radiofrequency ablation? You said for potentially the microcarcinomas? Yeah. So it's a great question, Gopi. So the contraindications for, you know, for RFA would be large malignant nodules, unsuitable nodule characteristics like we discussed, whether it's too close to a blood vessel or a nerve and it's unsuitable. Pregnancy. I don't think that it, we, would, we should be doing this on pregnant patients. It's certainly usually not a, a urgent issue. And as you know, obviously, uh, thyroid nodules will fluctuate during pregnancy and, and after pregnancy and lactation, et cetera. Actually, active infection, which is not something I've seen, severe bleeding disorders um, and uncooperative patients or patients who have cognitive impairment of some kind. Those would be your contraindications. But there is a role, a growing role for microcarcinomas, and this is done routinely in Brazil and Korea, and there's a clinical trial going on here in the United States. And I would feel comfortable doing a microcarcinoma if it was in the right place and in the right patient. And for that, they would totally destroy the, uh, the nodule. Uh, the rationale being that there are patients who are undergoing active surveillance and most of my thyroid cancer patients, you know, I continue to watch anyway. This, these are patients who would just be watched very closely with, uh, with uh, serial ultrasounds. So some of your recurrent, you've already done uh, surgery. 
for the, you know, for example, papillary thyroid cancer. And now we have a recurrent nodule. Any role for recurrent RFA and recurrent lesions? You know, again, abroad, there are people who are doing that. There are people who are doing parathyroid lesions. I personally have not done those. And I guess I would personally, I would look at recurrent cancer very skeptically, given the fact that uh, if it's a recurrence, is that the only area? Uh, I'm not really sure. It's not something that I would feel comfortable doing at this point in time. In terms of complications from RFA, we talked about the danger triangle and having heat close to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Um, When you counsel patients on a potential, you know, voice injury or recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, how do you counsel them? And what other potential complications do you counsel the patient on? Well, complications for RFA are similar to those for thyroid surgery, but they occur at a, a lower rate. We're actually doing a study right now, which hopefully will be ready this year, looking at complication rates in comparison. So obviously you have vocal cord paralysis, bleeding, infection, and damage to surrounding structures in the neck. There are reports of Horner syndrome. Like I said, the complication rates are lower in the literature. And there are some complications, for instance, that I don't know of any descriptions of a thyroid hematoma. A thyroid hematoma after thyroidectomy or a hematoma in the central compartment after thyroidectomy is uh, life-threatening because you have a large bleed in an area near the airway. I don't think that this really occurs with RFA. The thyroid is still in situ and uh, I've not seen or read about any severe you know, hemorrhaging or hematomas. I have not read about thyroid storms, but you know, I, w- I would just say that the that similar complications, but to a lower degree. So they come in, it's about 45 minutes. Um, what are your post-op instructions? You know, you mentioned that sometimes it can swell back up a little, their neck can have a little swelling afterwards. You know, do they have to do warm compresses? Is there, is there any reason for antibiotics? No, we don't, typically don't treat, it's a, it's a clean, sterile procedure. We do not, I do not give antibiotics. Their pain, I typically will put a little bit of ice on the neck. Their pain is controlled typically with uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. I've not had any patients who have had any need for anything further than that. And when do you see them back? Do you see them back in a couple of weeks? Is it like at their, you know, before their next ultrasound in a couple of months? Well, we typically check up on them that week to see how they're doing. And when I first started, I was getting ultrasounds at three six and 12 months. Now I get them at uh, six and 12 months. Since I've been doing this and uh, until recently, I'm the only person in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania doing it. I have people traveling from very far away. And so just, I don't want it to be a hardship for them to have to travel back for me to say, hey, how how are you doing? I'll feel your neck. So we typically do it at six and, and 12 months. And if they come from far, I'm agreeable to them getting an ultrasound in their home location as long as I can get my hands on the actual images. And then we assess it. Typically, we like to see a reduction of 50 to 80% at a year. And it's very important that the patients, again, understand this is not, this does not occur overnight. So a good result is 50 to 80% at a year. But let's say, okay, you know, the size has gone down 50%, but it was really big in the beginning. And maybe they still have some dysphagia or compressive symptoms. How often do you have to go back and reablate, or are there risks associated with that? No, you can ablate on more than once. I've done it on, I believe, two occasions. One is someone who had a huge, partially cystic, partially solid nodule, and a lot of it reaccumulated in both of these. It just had a lot of islands that were secreting. 
And I one patient who, after one time, opted for surgery, and and I did that. And so it does not preclude you from doing it again if necessary. It's usually not necessary. When it is necessary, it's in patients who have really huge nodules. So, you know, when I started patient selection, I tried to be very, very careful, and I was doing patients with really large nodules. And those are the patients who need to have it done a second time, typically. And for patients that have bilateral big nodules or an extensive, do you have to, do you do both sides at the same time? I don't do them at the same time. And to be honest, I'm trying to remember if there's anyone who I've done more than one. Typically, that's not the issue. There is one that is the offending nodule. I'm sure you can do it twice. I'm trying to think offhand. I don't remember if I've had patients who have done it, who have asked or needed it done, but it's possible. I, I probably wouldn't do it at the same time just because of the like I said, it's intense and for patient comfort. In terms of recurrence, let's say you got a good result. It you know shrunk down. The nodule shrunk down 80%. They're asymptomatic. It's small. Do these F nodules tend to regrow or get big again? Well, I guess you and I will both have to stand, stand by for an answer to that. So far, I've not had any. I've only been doing this for about maybe three years now. So I've not had any who have uh, regrown again, except for the... Uh, this nice patient who had the uh, cystic. Yeah, and I, I had to go back for that one. So you uh, just kind of going back um, in terms of how you got training in this. So you said that, you know, the person who's the operator, the person that's performing the procedure has to be very facile with the ultrasound. Tell me a little bit about that. And then sort of where do, do you have to do a course? Is this, how do you get skilled at this? So uh, I've been doing ultrasounds for many years and I was I was an ultrasound instructor for the College of Surgeons. So I've been comfortable with ultrasound for a long time. When radio frequency came up, I was going to travel abroad to get trained. And then our friendly neighborhood pandemic arose and um, travel was precluded. So I practiced, I bought the machine, I practiced on phantoms. And then when we had our first two cases, I brought up a former mentor of mine then at Johns Hopkins, and he came up and he watched me do a couple of cases, and that was it. And are there courses? Now there are. We just put on a very successful course at Penn State in June of last year. Hopkins also has a course, John Russell. There, there, I don't know how many courses there are in the United States. There are in Korea and in Brazil every now and again. Yeah, so, you know, courses help and watching videos, but you know, it's like any other procedure that you and I do. How are you taught? You learn the technique. You make sure that you can serve your patients and be safe and feel comfortable doing it. You make sure the patient understands, you know, when I told, when I did my first, second, third, fourth, I told my patients, you're my first, second, third, fourth. And they understood okay. that. Is it, was it difficult to get the equipment? Did you have to get buy-in from your hospital? <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. Is it, can you share the equipment? Like, is this something that's shareable or... So you always have to have buy-in. Always, <laughs> always, always. Um, the piece of equipment is not that expensive. Some institutions will already have a version of it because a lot of people, like I said, this is not new technology. So while I didn't ask specifically, I'm pretty sure that my institution does this for the liver and for pain management, and they probably have that equipment. And like I said, ultrasound, we've been doing for a very, very interventional ultrasound. My department does in, in many, not only in thyroids and parotids and Botox and all kinds of other injections. So it was not that, it really, once we had the buy-in, it was not that big a deal. 
And what it is is a generator, okay? And what it provides the exact amount of electricity to target the diseased tissue, if you will. Yeah, it was not that. There was not that difficult an issue. I do know of colleagues of mine who have been fighting the uh, the bureaucracy that goes with purchasing cutting edge technology. But this is the healthcare system we all live in. <laughs> and um, is RFA, you know, are there guidelines or consensus statements, or is it part of the ATA now? Where are we at with the guidelines? Hmm. That's a great question. Are there guidelines? There are lots of guidelines. <laughs> Various medical societies and organizations have developed guidelines for radiofrequency ablation of thyroid nodules. And you have to keep in mind that these guidelines change and evolve, and that then they are just that. So the Korean Society has guidelines. The American Thyroid Association came out with guidelines, and what are they, you know, they stress the need for proper patient selection and nodules that cause symptoms. European Thyroid Association has guidelines. The American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists and the American College of Endocrinology all have guidelines. They're all very, very similar. Italian society and Japanese society also have guidelines. A place where they may vary is how many benign biopsies do you get before you do a radiofrequency ablation? Some of them insist on two, and some of them say one is enough. But for the most part, the guidelines are incredibly similar. As we start to um, round out the discussion, wrap it up, uh, what kind of, what final pearls do you have for this technology? One thing that you have to discuss with your patients is that radiofrequency ablation may not be covered by insurance at this point in time. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. And I've worked very, very hard with my fantastic, and I mean fantastic revenue cycle people before I did that. And so it's really important that you do so if you're going to start this practice. Like I said, there are courses here in the United States. If you want to go to Brazil or Korea, they have them there as well. And you know, now that there are more courses, it's probably smart. And we did our uh, course. We had uh, not only did we have phantoms, we had cadavers, we had uh, lectures, we had question and answer, and it was very well received. So if you want to start doing that, we also had a, a lecture on how to start the practice with all those pearls about buy-in and cost and who you have to rope into the conversation and what codes to use. So in this day and age, as it's becoming more and more mainstream, that's important. Patient selection, as always, is incredibly important. And the most important thing to remember is this is just another tool in a thyroid practice. So every patient who comes in to me with a benign thyroid nodule is offered the options of observation with no intervention radiofrequency ablation, if appropriate, or surgery, if appropriate. We don't force people into anything. We just make them aware of the options. And patients tend to come to places that they get good clinical care and that they have an array of options and someone's willing to discuss it with them. But I guess, you know, that's the way it has been with us. Um, one last question for you. Are your uh, medical students and residents, uh, your trainees getting exposure to this procedure with you? Because I would, I would imagine it's it's something still very new. Not everybody's doing it. And so to you know, have that exposure early on is probably very helpful. So I'm going to give you a, just a little long-winded answer, if you don't mind. When I first came to Penn State Health back in 18 years ago, I asked a resident if the patient had any imaging. And that resident's answer was, no, just ultrasound. And from that, I learned that it's really important that residents are trained you know, in otolaryngology on ultrasound. And we've been giving internal courses on head and neck ultrasound for the last 18 years, every two or three years. 
So yes, residents are observing and participating in radio frequency ablation. It's our obligation to teach them everything that we do and know so that when they go out, they're able to offer this. I do not have medical students doing this. <laughs> no, no, they, they were watching. Anyone, <laughs> There's yes. a lot to we learn have, just uh, from watching. <laughs> oftentimes the room uh, is very crowded when we do this and that, yeah. you know, that's great. Um, I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, David. Um, we always love having you on. You always contribute so much education to our platform, so we appreciate it. For our listeners that want to learn more, um, how can they get in touch with you? And also tell us about the RFA training course next June, right? Yeah. 2024? Last, uh, it will probably be at the very, at the beginning of June, come up to Hershey. It's beautiful here. Really, really beautiful. And it's a two-day course. Intense. But first time we had 25 people, we limited it to 25 people so that everyone could get, you know, hands-on personalized training by the, you know, we flew up Dr. Rangel from Brazil, from Rio de Janeiro. We flew Ralph Tufano up from Sarasota and it was very, very well received. So I assume we'll be doing it the first couple of days of June in 2024. Awesome. Any social media handles for you or for the Odo program at uh, Penn State? Absolutely. Um, my ex Twitter ex uh, handle is uh, <laughs> at thyroid underscore surgeon. And the department is at PSH underscore Odo. Awesome. And then just to um, uh, for our audience, um, remember, uh, Dr. Goldenberg has a textbook, Head and Neck Endocrine Surgery, a comprehensive textbook, surgical and video atlas. So please check that out. It's wonderful to see you and talk with you. I think it's a wrap. All right. Thank you, Gopi. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's Version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.